Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Ibopedia. I am your host, Chisun, and my special guest today is Okechuku Nzel. He is a writer and teacher, and his debut novel is called The Private Joys of Nenna Maloney. It's a story about youth, race, sexuality, and belonging. This novel recently won a Bessie Trask Award and was shortlisted for the Bessie Trask Prize, the Desmond Elliott Prize, and the Polari First Book Prize. Okechuku was born in Manchester and read English at Girton College, Cambridge University. I'm really, really happy and excited to have him on the show today. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's so lovely to be here on, on a show where somebody can pronounce my name properly. This is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. And it's great to have you on. And actually, I was going to say it's great to see an Igbo name in the title of a book. So I'm sure we'll have a great discussion and lots to unpack here about the book, but also about your life. So let's begin with your latest published work titled The Private Joys of Nenna Maloney. It is best described as a funny and tender tribute to community, faith and forgiveness, to growing up and to growing into ourselves. Could you give us a brief plot summary? Yeah, so the novel revolves mainly around Nena, as you say, who is about to turn 17 and she lives in Manchester with her mother, Jodie, who is white, English, and she's never met her father and she doesn't know why. And as she starts to grow up, she and as she turns you know she's about to turn 17 she starts asking these questions about her father and about her heritage and she starts sort of learning Igbo um, which she's never learned or really heard before and this makes her once quite tender and warm relationship with her mother much more strained because her mother doesn't really want to discuss what happened with her father there's a big mystery surrounding it so the novel is really um it's about the the two of them um, learning about themselves and about each other. And we learn about them as well through flashbacks to Joni's past with Nana's father, who she met when she was at university. And we see their love story develop and grow and eventually fall apart. And the novel is also, uh, in a secondary way, the story of a host of other characters in Manchester, the, the friends and lovers of the, of the mother and daughter. Who or what was your inspiration for the central character, Nana Maloney? That's a good question. I At first, the story, I, I didn't really want to write it as it was now. I went through a series of different drafts and evolutions. And at first, the, I wanted to write just about teenagers. So I wanted to write about Nena and her friendship group primarily. And then I thought, really, I want to write about Nena, just her and her mother much more. So it kind of evolved, I suppose, out of a fascination that I have with that journey of self-discovery. Um, although Nena's story is not my own, I have, I think, like a lot of people, of like a lot of um, Igbo people who live here and who are born here in Britain, I can really relate to that story of kind of learning about yourself through your own sort of journey and figuring out your history and language, because of course, it's not taught in school. And so you have to go, you have to do the library work, you have to buy the books, listen to the podcasts, you have to do your own sort of research and figure it all out for yourself. Um, and that can be really quite a difficult and lonely private thing. So I wanted to write about that sort of journey. Whilst you, you tackle quite very deep subjects, as I described before, like as, and you just mentioned now, so identity, belonging, race, youth, etc. The book actually begins very interestingly with a farcical intro. And that's also what I really love. Just talk us through the kind of the methods that you use and why you chose to start with such a, a farcical introduction to a very serious book. 
Yeah, I'm really glad you enjoyed that. I love comedy. I love farce, especially um, at university. I did a bit of acting and I was at, and I acted in a few farces that really just stayed with me, I guess. I love the idea that everything can seem completely chaotic and then out of that chaos can emerge something really serendipitous and beautiful. And I wanted to start the novel on that kind of, on that note of sort of almost a fateful meeting because after that, as we, as is no spoiler really, everything falls apart. Um, Nena's parents meet in this bizarre way where the two of them are brought together from very different life experiences. And you would never expect them to meet and they're in the middle of this farce, as you say. And then you would hope that out of that would perhaps come something quite blessed and quite solid that has been brought together almost by the hand of God. But I wanted the reader to feel a bit bereft, actually, when the two characters, when the two parents' relationship doesn't work out the way that they're both wanting it to and both really trying to make it work out. I wanted to portray this sense that something has really been lost, that the rest of the novel is spent trying to figure out if it's possible to get back. Bernadine Evaristo, Booker Prize winner and author Girl, Woman, Other. I'm going to just take a short quote of what she said about your book. Nzelu writes with a witty confidence rarely seen in debut fiction, smart, serious and entertaining. I expect this book to have wide appeal and for the writer to go far. That is a pretty, <laughs> pretty stellar endorsement. <laughs> Describe the feeling of getting such a powerful endorsement from another successful writer for your debut novel as well. I mean, it was wild. Um, so I got the email from uh, my publisher, Charmaine Lovegrove, who said, you know, Bernadine Evaristo, she's a huge fan of um, dialogue books, the imprint that I'm, that I'm published by. And she um, and she's written this quotation about you and we're going to put it on the book. And I just, I think I screamed, <laughs> I think I screamed <laughs> when I got the email because I just, I think she's just incredible. And, you know, I love Girl, Woman, Other. I think it's just such an incredible book. And Bernadine Evaristo has been this amazing figure in literature for a long time even before she won the Booker Prize and then so to to have that praise from her oh it's just incredible it's just just so incredible you know and she is also somebody who as it happens has that sort of mixed race heritage and so understands the journey that Nena goes on in a very real personal way so for her to praise that book was just incredible. I can only imagine the feeling but does that also put some great expectations on your shoulders. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I expect this writer to go far. No pressure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does, but also in an amazing way because I am ambitious for my writing. I want to write things that change people and that comfort people and provide companionship. I want my writing to do a lot and there's a lot that I want it to do. So for her to say that that is possible and that she expects my writing to go far is it's a huge encouragement as well as a kind of a it's almost like saying yep keep going I, yeah. I see what you're doing keep doing it it's nice it's wonderful yeah yeah it is it's great let's talk about or let's think about your literary heroes imagine a scenario where you're stuck in an elevator for half an hour with one of your literary heroes who would you pick to be stuck in an elevator with and what would you discuss with them mm, this is a really good question and it's very very difficult if I had to be stuck with just one that's difficult because there's so many writers that I love but I think purely on the basis of a writer who is just really great 
to talk to as well as being a really clever and really brilliant writer, I would say Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie because she's just so incredible. I've seen her speak a few times. I've met her once actually, really briefly after an event that she did at the Ilkley Literature Festival in Yorkshire a few years ago. And she's just, and having seen her speak, as you know, she's just such a very smart, funny person. And I feel like somebody being stuck in an elevator with somebody like her would be less awful and traumatic than it would be with with most of the people so yeah I would choose her that's a great choice okay you mentioned that there are many other people who else would be on your second list so many can I choose do they have to all be alive no they can be deceased actually okay I would choose James Baldwin I feel like he would just be very like I feel like a he'd know what to do like he'd sort the lift out Pronto, like he'd know who to call his mobile phone would be the only one that would have signal and he would get it sorted but also who else would I choose Zadie Smith again she's just really really funny a writer called Dodie Smith as well who I also love um who um if your listeners aren't familiar she wrote 101 Dalmatians but she also wrote yes. this brilliant book called I Capture the Castle oh you know it yes I read that one oh, when I was younger yeah yeah me too I read it when I was like 14 I loved it um and I've just re- I've read a little bit about her and she just seems like this really funny person from the book she, she seems really like wise and knowing and I think Wallace Yinka as well very good choices so let's move on to talk about your early life you were born in Manchester where the book is set actually in the late 80s your parents your Igbo parents just came to the UK yeah, so my parents, would uh, they came over from Nigeria to the UK, as you say, in the 80s, as part of what's now called the brain drain. This idea that because it was very hard and still is um, in Nigeria to, to, to find anything resembling a meritocracy, a lot of educated people came over from Nigeria to the UK or the US or other places um, to find a, you know, a better life and a fairer life for themselves and their children. And one of the things, obviously, that the book deals with is the complexity of that, that you, you come, you leave somewhere that is not treating you fairly, that, you know, is corrupt in certain ways. And then, of course, you come to <laughs> the West <laughs> where you encounter racism and all sorts of other fun things that you definitely don't want to see. So that was a complexity of how I grew up. You know, I was um, raised to be very good at English and look what happened. <laughs> I, was, I was raised to be very good at English in part because it was explicitly made clear to us by our parents that you have to be better at it than white English people. Otherwise, you will never get the opportunities that you deserve. And also, on top of that, I just always loved reading and stories and writing. Mm-hmm. You know, writing always felt very natural to me. And it always felt like this. It felt like the next step um, along from sort of being able to physically write words and sentences. So that was always a very early joy for me. And as was going to public libraries, you know, we went to them sort of every weekend and I loved it. It felt like this free space where I could explore different identities and experiences in a way that you can't really do in any other medium or something I couldn't at that age. Maybe it's different now with streaming and things, but it just felt like this, like you were just set free into this wonderful world of choice and variety and experience and I and I loved that and I think from a very early age I wanted to be part of that world and to be giving something back to it. That's excellent it sounds like your passion started at an early age but what were the other influences of the Igbo or Nigerian culture on your childhood aspirations because 
I'm from an Igbo background, obviously, there is this strong sense of there are certain career paths that your, <laughs> your parents expect you to choose. Yeah. <laughs> so whilst they might nurture your writing, were they thinking doctor, lawyer, engineer, the typical things? Like, what oh, was that yes. like? <laughs> Definitely. So I was never going to be a doctor because I'm just not very good at science. I've, I worked very hard at school, you know, I got good grades. But um, science was just never something that I displayed an inherent ability in. And I think that was obvious for anybody to see. <laughs> you know, I had to work very hard for the grades that I got in science and maths and stuff like that. So it was always going to be like, as we know, if you're Nigerian, there's a hierarchy and there's medicine at the top. Yes. Then law, then maybe engineering or something else that is like professional and very easy to see I think what attracts a lot of Nigerians to it is the idea that you can't it's quite hard to discriminate against somebody based on their results and the, and the work that they do if you are in these professions you know right. the idea that if you're a doctor if you make somebody if somebody gets better under your watch that's it then they can't say it. it's very hard to work race into that I suppose as a theory um, and so that was made very clear to me I and I remember when I um, you know when I told my mum that I wanted to study English at university it was like honestly it was like hammering out a nuclear arms treaty like having these like <laughs> meetings like this you've got to have a plan you've got to do this and then I'm going to do a law conversion course which of course in the end I didn't do and and you know it was it was it was difficult it, it was like it was a long series of long conversations mm -hmm. being able to sort of negotiate the career that I wanted and that you know I understand where that concern comes from because being a writer is not for most people, a financially reliable job is your only job. And it's not my only job. I'm a high school teacher as well. So for me, you know, I, I get that. But at the same time, there was a kind of nurturing of my writing, I think, which sort of sat alongside that in a way that might seem quite bizarre. You know, I, I must have been about 10 years old when my dad gave me a copy of Things Fall Apart. And I, <laughs> I remember him saying to me, um, you want to be a writer, then you need to read this. And he just gave it to me and walked out of the room. And I was like, ah, the goal has been set. <laughs> the goal had been set. And, you know, that's fun. You know, on the one hand, that is, you know, pressure and expectation. I tried reading the book, but I wasn't old enough at like nine or 10 years old to understand it at all because it's a rich and complex narrative. But and, until I, and, you know, I didn't read it until I was much, much older. And, you know, there was that pressure. But at the same time, I think Achebe's work has been so powerful and influential. And you know that because if a Nigerian parent is saying you want to be a writer and not throwing that idea out of the door, that yeah. is some impact, right? <laughs> like that is the influence <laughs> of a major writer. Yeah. If you can convince a Nigerian parent that writing is a career that, your ch that their children might potentially be able to do even part time. You, so you made us into Cambridge University studying your English degree. What was it like? Because obviously Cambridge is not the most diverse, racially diverse environment. And there's been a lot of press recently about the relatively low proportion of black and ethnic minority students at the university. Same goes for Oxford, same goes for the Ivy League universities. Describe your experience at Cambridge University and the role that race plays in education. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It was not a diverse place ethnically you know I've come from Manchester um specifically South Manchester like I went to I grew up in Russia I went to school in Russia which is a very um diverse ethnically part of Manchester which is a diverse city so to go from that to Cambridge which is you know mostly why lots of people who've come from London it was 
a bit of a shock to the system, I remember. You know, I remember I was um, the ethnic minorities rep on my sort of JCR, the student council. And one of my sort of jobs was to throw a party for a sort of a cultural festival for something that, you know, that represented a minority ethnic group in the student body. And I chose Diwali. And it was surprising to me how many people just didn't know what it was. Mm. And I thought, how strange. Like, we were taught about that in school because there were so many different religions and beliefs around us that of course you would learn about Diwali because you know this person sitting on that table celebrates Diwali with their family and it makes sense to but then I went to this place where not only was there such a lack of difference in front of me but so many of the people that I'd encountered had themselves not really encountered a lot of difference in their own lives up until that point so and that you know on, on the one hand I I think because I choose my friends very very carefully the people that I spent a lot of time with were very great and um and did have those experiences and were open-minded and and were you know and self-educated and all those things but a lot of the time a lot of the people I remember on my on the sort of the hinterland on the sort of the periphery of my experience I remember certain things being said and done that were very that were dodgy at best and outright racist at worst I remember Mm -hmm. I remember being at a house party very early on and explaining to somebody and someone was sort of talking to me about um this is a white person who's talking to me about that gap year that they spent in Kenya and 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 then saying oh yeah Kenya's <clears throat> yeah it's a you know, really troubled country lots of corruption lots of corruption I was like oh okay well my parents are from Nigeria and they cut me off to be like just carry on explaining about that right the like one year that they paid to spend in Kenya and I was like okay so this is where I am you know, I think of that as a kind of defining moment of the of a lot of the racism problems that I encountered in Cambridge. But I think because, again, because my my own sort of personal friendship group was quite small and very selective, it meant that I, I, I don't know, a lot of my experience, a lot of my memories of Cambridge are really, really positive. So I really wanted to reflect, I guess, both sides of that in, in mm. the book that I was writing. So it sounds like you found your own tribe or you created your own tribe within Cambridge. I'd like to explore a little bit what role the university or not well, generally what role teachers can have in terms of um, levelling the playing field a little bit for black students. Because you're currently, as you said, a high school teacher. First of all, why did you choose to become a teacher? And what do you think your role now can be having gone through the education experience as a minority student? Yeah, that's a really interesting thing to discuss, isn't it? And that's been um, so topical, especially right now. I originally didn't want to be a teacher. I remember when I was at school, like being a teacher was like my worst nightmare job, which is probably (laughs) true for like most 16 year olds. I was like, oh, teacher, no. And before I was a teacher, I worked in publishing for a few years for this lovely poetry press in Manchester called Carcanet Press. And that was a really lovely experience that I had. And I met lots of people that I really admired and I read lots of things I wouldn't ordinarily have read. But by the end of those three years, I thought, I'm not sure that this is something I want to do forever. And so I was thinking, what can I do next? I really love my degree. I want to stay with English. I want to keep that. But I'm not sure that publishing is for me. And then I thought, of course, teaching. It seemed just like the natural next step I really wanted to have. I really want to do something that made me feel um, like I was doing something that mattered and that was having an impact on the people directly in front of me. And I wanted to stay with my degree, as I said, and I wanted to do like a more people facing job. A lot of the the publishing world that I was in certainly was very um, computer based and I wanted something very interpersonal. And so teaching, yeah, that is exactly what it is. You know, it's a very, very difficult job, but it is a job that allows you to really impact people and to, you know, influence people for the better and be a really positive presence in people's lives. 
especially now specifically to do with you know these the discussion around decolonizing the curriculum which I don't mm. think I remember hearing when I was at university I don't know about you no I didn't no. no I don't remember hearing that when I was at university either so it seems like to me it seems like a fairly new thing which is you know and it's a fantastic thing and it's you know we have to work within the choices that the exam boards give us I teach English that means you know the poems and the novels and the plays that I teach you know mm. I have to prepare the students for the exam so we have to work within those choices so there's a larger conversation to be had there but then on the outside of that we can also you know all English teachers I think give try and give their students a pretty broad diet of things to read and experience so that they can discuss and access a lot more things and I think that's really important it's part of the it's you know it's what they're entitled to I think these the students that we're teaching deserve that really broad um, diet of literature otherwise I think they're being shortchanged yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And like you said, I hadn't at secondary school or university, I did not hear anything about decolonizing the curriculum. But now it's the first step because it's being taught about. So that's the first step in the right direction. How it's done obviously needs to be discussed quite carefully. But I think it's it's really important um, for people because the world is becoming more diverse um, and it's important to have that knowledge at an early stage in life. Definitely. I think that, you know, especially at that early stage in life, that's when students are really curious about these things. They, mm. They're interested in people's who's, people whose lives are not necessarily the same as theirs or people whose lives they don't see necessarily reflected in the media so often. So I think it's great. And that I've and I've been fortunate enough to teach um, No Longer at Ease, actually, to um, oh. a couple of GCSE classes, which has been fantastic. And I'm teaching Lorraine Hansbury's A Raisin in the Sun Right Now to my sixth formers, which is just, uh, it's wonderful to be able to give these wonderful works of literature to students, especially knowing that they might not encounter them otherwise. It's, it mm. really does make you feel like you're doing something that really matters. So let's create a hypothetical scenario. Mm. You have a dinner party at your home and you can invite three guests, living or deceased. Mm. Which ones would they be? This is another really good question. So I think my first one would be Afra Ben, who was um, an English playwright um, in the Restoration period. And also, I think it's more or less confirmed that she was a spy. So Ooh. she, I feel like she would just have a lot of interesting conversation and she'd know a lot of stuff that she wasn't supposed to know. So she would be really fun. <laughs> I would invite Lorraine Hansbury because she died young. Um, I think she was only like 36 when she died. Not much older, definitely. But she just did so much in her life. You know, her parents were involved in the NAACP. She wrote this amazing play. She was, you know, she she knew theatre. She knew this incredibly powerful medium and she knew all these incredible people I think she'd be really good and my third person who's also dead (laughs) 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 it's gonna sound like I just don't want to talk to anybody who's still alive (laughs) Zora Neale Hurston um whose novel that eyes are watching god I just love 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 again because she had this incredibly fascinating life and full of exciting things and she knew all kinds of interesting people like like Langston Hughes and she had that friendship with him that was very interesting and yeah I feel like all these three people they would have lots of interesting things to say and I feel like they just we just have a really good time. Yes that sounds great. I'm not sure which one of us would be doing the cooking but you know we'll figure that out. (laughs) You could get delivery. (laughs) Yes. Let's switch to talking about The Private Choice of Nenna Maloney. There's so much in this book that I'd love to unpack. So I'll talk about it. We'll split up or break up our discussion into some key themes. 
Um, but firstly, what I loved about the book is that whilst it's heartwarming and often humorous, it does cover these really complex issues and very topical subjects from a religion to family, identity, race, sexuality, gender, class, etc. It's like you put everything into this book. <laughs> but you did so in a really, really good way, as I said, with humour as well at times. You also explored how stigmatization happens across various segments of society. So, right, the first topic I would like to explore with you is intersectionality. Mm. First of all, it would be great if you gave us like a brief summary of what this actually means. But let's talk about the character of Jonathan, because he is black and queer. Yeah, so intersectionality is um, a term which I'm hearing much more often than I did a few years ago, certainly, um, invented by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, I think in this in the 80s, which refers to how different the belonging to different sort of oppressed or marginalized groups can compound um, one's experience of being oppressed or marginalized in ways that are different from simply being belonging to one of those groups. So the obvious example is to be a black woman. You experience racism and you experience misogyny in a way that is different from somebody who only experiences one of those things at a time. And in the novel, um, for Jonathan, who, as you say, is a gay black man, he is somebody who is really struggling with his mental health, partly because of the way that him his um, queerness and his blackness are oppressed in the society in, the, in which he lives. He um, he is at a time in his life when in sort of late thirties when a lot of men lose their friendships and a lot of men simply struggle to make new ones. So that's certainly mm. part of it. But he's also struggling with the fact that the gay community is very racist, and he's struggling with the fact that he has to have a you know, his chosen family, this is a sort of term that we love to exalt, this idea that you have friends who will be like your family, but then there's an instability there that he falls foul of. He doesn't have parents and siblings who are this sort of permanent support network for him that is unconditional. And because of that, he suffers from loneliness, which causes him to make choices which are not always to in his own best interest, um, which is partly why he ends up dating somebody who is well dating is a loose word for what they're doing but um <laughs> he ends up sort of entanglement an entanglement outstanding yes an entanglement jada would be so proud <laughs> with this person who's really bad for him who treats him really badly and he really has to do a lot of work around his own self-esteem before he can reckon with that the theme of religion kind of runs throughout your book so every chapter begins with a quote from a biblical verse often the book of job Jonathan, as you say, he's not quite welcomed. He is very, he's part of a religious group at university. And that's partly what is stopping him from being fully accepted into that community because they aren't, they are rejecting, or there's one particular character that taught him some very, very harsh words mm. in a church, actually, which kind of kicked off um, a series of negative experiences for him. Why did you choose um, religion and why did you choose to kind of interweave that into in every chapter, starting with a quote? For me, it was really part of my own experience in a lot of ways. I grew up in the Church of England. My family went to church every Sunday, as lots of Nigerian and as lots of Igbo families will have done the same thing. And when I was about Nena's age, when I was about 16, I went from really devoutly believing in God to really struggling with that belief. And I couldn't square that belief with the world that I saw in front of me. You know, what we call the problem of evil, this idea that how can you have a benevolent God who loves humanity and also have so much needless, pointless suffering 
that a benevolent God could prevent or stop. And I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around those two things. I couldn't, I couldn't find myself a way to believe in God with that problem in front of me. And that was a really difficult thing for me. It was a really difficult period in my life in that sense, because I had to sort of not just go from believing in God to not believing in God, mm. but I also had to figure out a whole new way of seeing life. You know, I'd grown up thinking that there was somebody in heaven watching everything I do and suddenly that person disappeared, you know, overnight. Yeah. And that really affected, that was a really profound thing that I had to deal with. And so for, that's why I wanted to write that sort of journey in for Jonathan, who is struggling with that, and also for Morris, who is struggling, uh, Nella's father, who, we, who you know, she hasn't met. But, um, you know, Morris is also struggling with exactly what he believes God to be and what God wants from him. And, and that was a really profound thing for me. And But yeah, even though I don't believe in God anymore, I really wanted to, you know, I couldn't, well, I couldn't help the fact that, that my sort of Christian upbringing really ref, um, inflects the way that I see the world to this day. You yeah. know, I, I can't say that I read the Bible every night or anything like that, but I still have a really profound connection to certain elements of the Bible, like the book of Job, you know, which is just this incredibly beautifully written frustrating story of what happens when somebody does sort of start to lose their faith and then God's response to that which is typically frustrating enigmatic and I wanted to sort of write that sort of that journey and that struggle because it was something that I knew from a in, you know really personally let's switch over to Nena actually and her her the kind of topics you discuss and describe um, for her character. So race and identity is one. And she is someone who's not quite comfortable in her own skin. Mm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the, that. And also race in relation to her father's experience at the time as an immigrant, essentially, um, in Cambridge. Yeah, so I really enjoyed writing uh, this sort of these, this dual narrative. Because on the one hand, we've got Nena, who is about to turn 17. And on the one hand, she's got a very firm identity as a very intellectually, you know, academically successful person who's got a really bright future ahead of her. The novel kicks off partly when her teacher tells her that she could study at the Sorbonne in Paris and that she, you know, she's got this, she's got the ability to do that and she should be excited. So on the one hand, her, her future is mapping itself out for her really nicely and really neatly. On the other hand, there's still a huge amount that she doesn't know about herself and her father. And that for her, it kind of undermines the plans that she's making and the excitement that she's got about her life. So I really enjoyed writing that sort of counterpoint. One of the things that kicks off her journey about learning Igbo is her boyfriend, Danny, who is white and nowhere near as clever as her, which I really enjoyed writing as well, because that is a really interesting power dynamic. You know, the fact yeah. that on the one hand, he's male and white and she is neither of those things. And yet all of his friends think that he's sort of like punching above his weight because Nena is this incredibly gorgeous, clever person. And he is kind of average as, or, or seen, as, seen as such by his friends. And so the story kicks off when he's kind of feeling pretty bitter about that and says mm. to her, oh, I can't believe you're so good at French, but you don't speak your own language. And this is the start of her journey for herself because she doesn't know how to respond to that. She doesn't have an answer to it. She doesn't, you know, she sees, she she hears comments like that or other sort of comments which are more straightforwardly racist and she doesn't know how to respond. She's never had those conversations with her parents about it the way that Morris has with his parents. Um, she doesn't have that grounding. And she also doesn't feel like she knows enough about herself 
And so her journey throughout the novel is partly one of figuring out her history and her, her language. She connects with her culture first and foremost by language because that's what she's good at. That's the way her brain works. She's a very, very good linguist. And so for her, it's a journey of being prepared to meet the world that she lives in and being a, being prepared to answer the questions that people are asking of her, but which she doesn't feel empowered enough to ask of her mother or connected enough to ask of her father. Mm. So it's, that's a nice segue into uh, the family theme because Nena's relationship with her mother is, Joni, is quite, it's quite strained. Um, <laughs> whilst they live together and they've, it's just been the two of them in the relationship, they have boundaries quite set quite firmly and Nenna is often too scared to breach the boundaries, too scared mm. to ask the questions, which is in part why she's doing this research about her background herself, even though her mother would probably be able to, or in theory, could provide the answers. So let's talk a bit about that family dynamic. Yeah, um, one of the things that is great about being published by Charmaine and my, my publisher is that she just got the story straight away. And I remember she summed it up really well as by this element of it really well by saying, Joni is her daughter's biggest champion, but also in some ways her biggest obstacle. And I think that's true. You know, they, the two of them at first, you know, in, in, way, in some ways they have a really close and tender relationship, um, which I also enjoyed writing because it was a huge act of imagination for me. Nena's relationship with her mother is one which is partly conditioned by the fact that they both grew up in the same country so they have a lot of the same cultural references whereas obviously as anybody who's got parents who grew up in Nigeria but who themselves yes. grew up here will understand that is not the case you know <laughs> um, I remember once um, listening to I was, I was in the car with my dad once and you know that song by Destiny's Child say my name it was on yes. the radio and it came on and my dad was like why, why does she keep asking her to say? Why does she keep asking him to say her name? Does she not know her own name? Like she just <laughs> like you know, you just didn't understand that cultural reference. And that is something that Nena doesn't have to work around. So I really yes. and I really enjoyed that sort of active imagination. And I wanted mm. to challenge myself to write an experience that's different from my own. But yeah, you're right. Um, because for Joni, there's a huge amount of her self-esteem and her and her own joy invested in Nena as this project that she's had for the past 17 years. There's a huge amount riding on this relationship with Nena, which causes her to take Nena's life very seriously in a lot of ways, but also it means that she puts a lot of pressure on the relationship and she doesn't give Nena the freedom to manoeuvre and to learn about herself and to figure out her own self on her own terms, because Joni feels as though if you know she she's she sacrificed a lot for this child it's true she had um she became pregnant with nena while she was at university and you know one of the things that the book sort of says is that that's just not something that cambridge students do you're not you don't make that sort of mistake as it were mm. and get pregnant while you're still a student it's just not something you do and so for her to go through with that and to keep the baby and raise the baby and especially at the time when there had been so much stigma around being with somebody, you know, dating across the racial divide. And for her, she's made a huge sacrifice and one that Nena, at her age, certainly could never really expect to be expected to understand. So for Joni, it's, there's a huge amount of love for her child, definitely, but also the way that that love works, because I think love always works differently between different people, at least yeah. slightly differently the way that that love works isn't necessarily good for either of them. 
so the novel is partly about forcing a change there Excellent. I think we've covered just a smidgen of the number of topics that you, you rise about, um, but I'll leave it there so I don't make any more spoilers for our listeners. But I would encourage everyone listening to this to pick up the book, The Private Joys of Nenna Maloney, excellent, heartwarming tale and just superbly written. Um, and of course, it's got an Igbo name in the title, Yay. so what more can you ask for? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Let's switch to Desert Island Choices. So you are stuck on a desert island, but you're allowed to take, let's say, two books with you to read while you're there. Which books would they be? Hmm. I would take The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy. Uh, You're nodding. Is this another one that you know? Yes, I've read this uh, a couple of years ago. It's fantastic. It's brilliant, isn't it? Um, For any listeners who don't know the novel, I'd really recommend it. It's, um, It's the story of a middle-class woman in India who falls in love with an untouchable man. So um, a love across the caste divide, and it's beautifully written. It's fantastic. And uh, my second book would probably be Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. It's this incredibly lyrical, beautiful story of um, a woman who struggles through suffocating relationships before finding herself in and finding herself in a relationship that is much more that is very different I'll say without spoiling the story for you it's just so beautifully written I love it it's fantastic if you could listen to a podcast which podcast would you listen to um besides Ebopedia, of course um (laughs) (laughs) I would choose the read which I'm just obsessed with um it's this really for anybody who doesn't know it's this brilliant podcast hosted by two queer black um americans um and they just they talk about pop culture they celebrate black excellence and they celebrate mm. um you know wonderful things that black people are achieving and doing and they take listener letters and they also like offer advice and stuff it's just a brilliant brilliant funny podcast oh i haven't heard of that but i will check it out definitely and uh, on your music playlist what would the top three tracks be? Hmm, that's a good question. Top, top three, three artists. Tra- okay, top three artists yeah. is easier. Probably easier, yeah. <laughs> um, so Dawn Richard, who is, um, maybe she just goes by Dawn now. She's um, an artist, in, an American artist who is just um, just incredible and diverse and she's fantastic. Like she's done so many different genres and she's brilliant. I think she's fantastic. I would choose Kate Renata whose work I just love. He's so inventive. And I would choose Beyonce. It's such a cliche to the extent I feel like I should be able to have a fourth choice if I say Beyonce. <laughs> so I'm going to have a fourth choice. I'm yeah, going to say um, Solange as well. Oh, interesting. The two sisters. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um, just before we wrap up, your next book is out in 2022, and that's published mm. by Dialogue Books. Um, no doubt it will be just as good, if not better, than The Private Joys of Nenna Maloney. So we are watching this space and really excited and looking forward to seeing that come on. Um, if our listeners are interested in getting in touch or following you to find out more about your work, where can they find you? Yeah, so um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, and my um, handle is at Nzelu Wright, so N-Z-E-L-U-W-R-I-T-E-S, um, for both Instagram and Twitter, and my website is nzelu.org. Excellent. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. I would have really enjoyed this discussion. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. 
and a big thank you to all those of you listening today. Until next time, this is Ibuopedia. Join the conversation, join the community. Thank you.